Welcome back to the Workplace Evolution Podcast with Michael Costello. I'm, I'm going to ask you a, a particularly difficult question. If Churchill was with us today, what do you think his message would be to the British people? Famous Churchillian phrases, you know, sort of almost subconsciously, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears and sweat. Never in the field of human conflict has so much been owed by so many to so few. Give us the tools and, and we will finish the job. The amazing thing, when you when you look at his speech notes, you see how he constructed them. And they're set out on the page like poetry, like a, a Shakespearean sonnet or like something from the book of Psalms. I think Churchill is someone who actually thrives in adversity. He's someone who is never happier than when at the heart of the crisis. Churchill, I believe, well, he would work well into the early hours of the morning, enjoy a, a whiskey with water at, at work and, and, of course, the cigar. And I believe enjoy wearing a, a good onesie as well. That's the secret to his, his stamina then, the, the, the mid-afternoon nap. Oh, nap. Absolutely. Is that encouraged at Churchill College, Cambridge University, Alan? Let's see if we can bring back the mid-afternoon nap in, in the pursuit of efficiency. Welcome back to the Workplace Evolution Podcast. Keep calm and carry on listening. Thanks for joining us on this very special VE Day celebratory podcast, highlighting the personality and leadership of the late, great Winston Churchill. I feel incredibly lucky to have had time to discuss the man's life with the world-leading expert on Churchill, Alan Packwood, director of the International Churchill Society and also director of the Churchill Archive Centre at Cambridge University. Alan granted my wish and completed a personality questionnaire answering as Winston Churchill. No one can of course do this accurately, but I think the results might just interest you. Alan and I certainly both had to laugh when we received the personality report describing his personality type. Stay tuned to find out what that was. We also recognise that Churchill was not perfect, and this is documented elsewhere. It's just for this podcast, we focused more on his strengths than his weaknesses. In these challenging times, I hope that all of you can be inspired by Churchill, his words, his deeds and his accomplishments, but most of all, that he knew that if we played our part in some way, we could overcome anything. Enjoy the podcast and of course, happy VE Day. Alan, great to have you on as a guest. We have a huge amount to explore about Winston Churchill, in particular his personality, his ability to lead and his relevance to present day. But before we do, how are things with you at Churchill College, Cambridge University right now and with the International Churchill Society? Like most archives, museums, libraries in the country, the Churchill Archive Centre is sadly closed to researchers. The collections are locked in our secure strong rooms. But we are trying to continue with a, a basic inquiry service and a basic social media service. I mean, again, we've had to cancel all of our physical events 
we're trying to make up for that by doing more online, including a, a really exciting competition, international competition, open to everyone anywhere in the world, encouraging them to come up with their own words to inspire like Churchill. So to take Churchill's great speeches as their starting point, but to come up with their own words of inspiration and hope in response to the current crisis. And the society is very generously giving $10,000 as a first prize to a hospital, hospice or healthcare organization of the winner's choice as the first prize in, in, in that competition, which is wonderful. So that, that's our bit in fighting COVID-19. They simply need to go to the website of the International Churchill Society, which is winstonchurchill.org. We'll make sure that that's in the podcast notes. No problem, Alan. And many of us will soon be either celebrating or remembering the day on the 8th of May. Do you think we can relate to this event in history to our own lives right now and, and what we're all going through, what with the, the pandemic? I mean, it, it's really interesting as an historian and as an archivist, people comparing the situation in London to the Blitz. You have the Queen um, referencing Vera Lynn in, in, in her address uh, and talking about how we'll all meet again. And I think there is a very understandable tendency at times of crisis to look back and to try and find the last point of, of comparable national and international crisis, how we got through that and to remind ourselves that we did get, get through that. So I, I think it's, it's a very natural thing. And of course, it means that Churchill is currently being quoted and misquoted everywhere. <laughs> Hopefully not misquoted right now. But you're absolutely right. You know, we, we've gone through so much uncertainty prior to COVID-19 with, with Brexit. We're trying to find ourselves going through a lot of uncertainty. So it's not surprising that many of us reach into the, the past and we're reaching into the past via, I guess, Churchill's personality. You very kindly completed a personality questionnaire acting as Churchill, responding as Churchill. And, and we found together that Churchill came out as the commander on a personality type questionnaire. Commanders being these natural born leaders when you first saw that result pop up, Alan, what, what did you think? Um, I, I thought, well, I, I, I must have got something right, basically, because <laughs> I think um, that's exactly how Churchill would have wanted. I found the whole process really interesting. I, I tried to answer actually very, very quickly, because I also think that um, Churchill was not known for his caution and his hesitancy. And I think if he was going to do something like this, which is itself very unlikely because he wasn't a particularly reflective personality, then he would certainly have sort of, he'd have done, he'd have done it quickly. You know, he would have strongly agreed or disagreed, I think, with, with, with many. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think we'll come on to that in the report. This is an individual, having read the report myself, he wants to get on. You know, he really wants, he's, he's persistent, proactive and, and wants to get things done and can be impatient at times, which I'm keen to explore. You know, Winston Churchill's report that, that we're looking at, it will highlight his strengths, it will highlight his development areas, his, his, his preferences. If he were to have read the report himself, you know, would he have been so self-aware that there wouldn't have been many surprises in there and actually any advice in the report would have just given him a bit of clarity on things to work on. 
Or do you think there would be some huge surprises, some incredible blind spots that he would never have thought about? I don't think that Winston Churchill was given to great self-reflection or great introspection. I think he had enormous amount of self-confidence in his own abilities. Um, therefore, I think it's sort of unlikely that, that he would have gone along with taking the test in the first place. Um, <laughs> had he sort of taken it, I, I think he, he would have looked at the headline, he would have looked at the commander personality, he would have liked that. But I don't think he, I think it's unlikely he would have reflected um, in detail on, on the strengths and weaknesses. I don't think he was given to that sort of, of, of self-reflection. Because there are some fascinating findings that, that, that we uncovered and one of them you know one of the strengths of a commander is being charismatic and inspiring someone able to inspire and invigorate others and many have said that was one of Churchill's main strengths was ensuring that the British people and, and, and people beyond the UK actually believed in themselves in the face of adversity what examples have you come across or come to mind for, for you, Alan, when you think about Churchill's career, where he, he did that and did that well? Well, the most obvious one has to be his oratory and leadership during 1940. You just have to think of how many of those sort of famous Churchillian phrases you know, sort of almost subconsciously, without having to, to think about it. I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears and sweat. Never in the field of human conflict has so much been owed by so many to so few. Give us the tools and, and we will finish the job. You could go on and on. And of course, he was really a master of words. This is a man whose whole career and, and life was, was underpinned by words, written and spoken. He made his name as a young war correspondent during the Boer War. He financed his political career by writing his newspaper articles, and he used those books and newspaper articles to convey his political views. But when it comes to 1940, the country is facing a moment of really extreme crisis. Um, our, our war strategy of fighting in Europe with France as our main ally has unraveled within a matter of, of, of just days and we're facing the possibility of direct attack. It falls on Churchill to lead the response to that. So he knows how much is riding um, on these speeches. Um, and, and the amazing thing, when you, when you look at his speech notes, you see how he constructed them. And they're set out on the page like poetry, like a, a Shakespearean sonnet or like something from the Book of Psalms. And of course, what it gives you is the rhythm, the emphasis, and it shows you how much effort Churchill is putting in to finding and crafting the right words for that moment. I heard um, the, the statistic, I'm not sure if it's true, but, you know, 30 hours preparation he would put in for 30 minutes which when you think about present day you know political leaders or, or, or business leaders more often they have a they have advisors around them that are doing that work that work up front do you feel that his his speeches were all the more powerful because he he actually had a connection to those words and spent so much time working on his speeches 
Absolutely. I mean, he was really first and foremost a writer. You're absolutely right that he didn't have a team of speechwriters in the way that a modern politician um, would have. The way that he worked is that he would gather information and he would have people collating information for him, but then he would dictate. You can imagine him pacing up and down the floor of his study, a cigar in one hand, maybe a glass of whiskey in the other. Um, he would dictate, the duty secretary would be on hand to take down his words on a state-of-the-art silent typewriter. He would then go through the speech. And we have the draft so that you can see with some of these big speeches, he's been through several times, annotating in different coloured pens. And it's only when the speech is in its, or close to its final format, that it's taken away and retyped. So he put an enormous amount of effort into these speeches at a time, of course, when he was dealing with huge amount of activity on other fronts. Um, you know, he's having to, to take war cabinet meetings, chair the defence committee, meet with the chiefs of staff, meet with foreign ambassadors, go to the Houses of Parliament. And yet he's still carving out the time to craft these speeches. And, and what I think is impressive about the speeches is the way that they they simultaneously, and they're designed to simultaneously appeal to different audiences. So these speeches send a message of defiance to Hitler, a message of hope to occupied Europe. They're designed to raise the morale of the British public, and also, of course, to act as a call for support for the United States. This is the Workplace Evolution Podcast with Michael Costello, where inspiration is our business. And, and that must take, as you say, with everything else going on, an incredible willpower and perseverance. Uh, and, and again, that's something that we see in his personality, something that, that, that came through in the, in the report. The personality is said to utilise willpower to its extreme when others might give up. So essentially, Churchill never gives up when the going gets tough. Uh, I think that's absolutely right. I think Churchill is someone who actually thrives in adversity. He's someone who is never happier than when at the heart of the crisis. When I think you see elements of the sort of the black dog that is so often cited, and when you see elements of depression, is when that is all suddenly taken away from him. So when he struggles um, is when he's not at central affairs, when he's unable to, to, to influence things. So you can see this at several points. When he loses office uh, after the failure of the Dardanelles campaign um, in the First World War in 1915, when he loses the British general election in 1945, and of course when he retires for the final time um, after his second premiership in 1955, uh, and he knew, of course, then that there would be no comeback, which is one of the reasons why I think he 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 held on to office for so long. I mean, if you're talking about the first real test of his his will, it probably comes at his first boarding school, St George's School in Ascot, which was a small boarding school for a select number of, of boys. It had a headmaster, Snaid Kinsley, who was well known for being well, applying corporal punishment quite liberally, put it that way. So mm -hmm. this was a strict Victorian boarding school. Churchill was a young, 
willful child used to having the run of Blenheim Palace, his grandfather's house. And of course, the two don't mix. And we have Churchill's school reports. They make very interesting reading. You get comments like, conduct has been exceedingly bad. He cannot be trusted to do any one thing. He's always in some scrape or other. And I think what you see is that Churchill refuses to fall in with school ways and with school discipline. The teachers grudgingly admit that he has good abilities, that he could be first if he wanted to be, but he's choosing not to be. And I think this is the first great example of that Churchillian will and that Churchillian stubbornness, this refusal um, to, to conform. This commander type loves to lead and is, is energised by taking people forward onto the area of, of, of building a high-performing team and, and leading a, a high-performing team. How did Churchill go about doing that when he actually did come into office in, in 1940? Well, I I think there are two things to say here. The first one is that what he did was bring together into one inner circle what had been very disparate teams. So he combines and draws no distinction between the civil servants at Downing Street, the military secretariat, which is now serving him in his capacity, not just as prime minister, but as minister of defence, and his own key advisors. And what he does is he brings all of these people together and forges them into one team. They are literally spending all of their time together um, in Downing Street, they're dining together, and he forges them into one team, which puts him right at the centre of war effort, both the political and the military effort. That's the first point. The second point, I think, in terms of building a team, I don't think he has a fear of being surrounded by equally clever, equally controversial um, um, figures. So he tends to, to like having strong personalities around him, people who will challenge him and who at times will oppose him. So, you know, he, he deliberately brings into that wartime government the newspaper magnate Lord Beaverbrook, who was an incredibly difficult person to get along with. Very, I mean, another commander personality, definitely. But Churchill knew that, that, that Beaverbrook also had great reserves of energy and would be able to mobilise elements of British industry and therefore puts him in charge of aircraft production. But in, in terms of bringing the team together and having such a diverse team, so much has been said about the value of conflict, being open and transparent about issues and, and challenges within the team. Can you give us an example, Alan, of the sorts of conflict that did come up in the, would you call it the war cabinet? Is that the Yes, cor- the war cabinet, which, which is yeah. the, so this is, it's basically um, a, a small cabinet of the key ministers who are meeting certainly in 1940 and if you're looking at sort of conflict in that team I I think it's 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 really interesting you know we forget that Churchill was not elected prime minister in 1940 he was prime minister because the house of commons had lost support uh, in Neville Chamberlain and Churchill was the only leading conservative who was able and willing at that time to form a coalition government But that, of course, meant that when he was looking around that war cabinet table in 1940, 
the other members of the War Cabinet initially. Um, he had his predecessor, Neville Chamberlain, his um, main rival for the Premiership, Lord Halifax, and he had the two Labour leaders, Clement Attlee and Arthur Greenwood. Wow. They're not his own appointees. They're not natural allies of Churchill's. Unheard of to have that situation. And what issues did they clash on? What's worthwhile clashing on? Yeah, biggest one, without doubt, there is a debate over three days. Um, And the debate is effectively started by Lord Halifax, who um, raises the possibility of exploring the possibility of peace terms with Hitler through Mussolini. And so Halifax raises this this possibility. Well, at this point, you know, should we explore negotiation? Churchill doesn't want to negotiate. His whole premiership is based on this idea of fighting until victory. And now now you have this debate um, with the Foreign Secretary. And that debate is flashed out over the course of three days by that small group. And you can imagine it in sort of claustrophobic, smoke-filled rooms. And the issues are very frankly and very fully debated. And in the end, Churchill is able to win over the other members of, uh, uh, of the war cabinet and to face Halifax down. In the way that he ran that war cabinet, in the way that he kept that coalition government together during the war, he quite often had to be very consensual. He didn't rule out negotiation and the possibility of negotiation. At the time, what he said in these meetings was that he felt it would be much better to negotiate after at least we had made um, um, some resistance. So his instinct was, was, was always to fight. This is David Coulthard with Michael Costello on the Workplace Evolution Podcast, the only podcast to guide you through the unknowns around the corner. We're often focused on things like well-being, regular breaks, making sure that you've got a a positive work-life balance. But Churchill, I believe, well, he would work well into the early hours of the morning, enjoy a a whiskey with water at at work and, and of course, the cigar, and I believe enjoy wearing a, a good onesie as well. What daily routine worked for Churchill that enabled him to work under all the pressure that, that he was under? And I guess what was his work ethic like as well, Alan? He was capable of huge amounts of, of hard work. I mean, this is someone who, of course, was a, was a cabinet minister at the age of just 33 in, in 1908 and whose career saw him hold um, many of the top offices uh, of state and you don't sustain a long political career without a real work ethic. It was one of the reasons why his career didn't end with the Dardanelles crisis. It's one of the reasons why Lloyd George had to bring him back into his government at the end of the First World War. He's someone who, if he's awake, he has to be active. If he's not doing the politics, then he's writing. If he's not writing, he's painting. If he's not painting, he's bricklaying or learning to fly. And I think that that is very much part of his personality. He's not given to introspection. It is about action. And if he could, he would work from bed 
in the morning. So he would have breakfast in bed, but then the secretaries would come in, they would bring him the newspapers, they would bring him the post. He would then rise, um, he might have a, a meeting or two before lunch. He would have quite a long lunch, but that lunch itself was more often than not a working lunch. He would be quizzing people on the on the latest developments, the the, the, the latest news. He would be conducting um, lunchtime diplomacy. Then after lunch, he would favour having a nap. And he believed that um, you had to do this properly. You actually had to get changed into um, your, your sleeping clothes um, and you would go to bed properly for an hour and then resuming further meetings, then um, a good and long dinner in the evening. But after dinner, when everyone else was perhaps relaxing over the port and cigars or in these big houses playing billiards, Churchill um, would go to his study, he would summon his secretaries and he would regularly then work through till one or two in the morning on books, on newspaper articles or during the war um, on, on papers. Wow. Um, so it, That's a secret to his, his stamina then, the, the, the mid-afternoon nap. nap. Absolutely. Is that encouraged at Churchill College, Cambridge University, Alan? Well, when I, very, when I first came to the Archive Centre 25 years ago, um, there was actually a small camp bed in the director's office. Um, but I'm afraid to say that's now disappeared. <laughs> Let's see if we can bring back the mid-afternoon nap in, in the pursuit of efficiency. Um, perhaps we could take, take one or two things from, from Churchill and apply it to our own routine. If we just think about the, the current crisis that we're in and some of the leaders that, uh, you know, globally, uh, that, you know, all eyes are on them at the moment. Some leaders have been criticised for talking about things they know nothing about, whether it be like a, a cure for corona, they might be making promises that they can't keep around PPE or things like that, or, or even pretending that the crisis could blow over in a short space of time. What do you believe Churchill would have managed effectively during this crisis, from what you know about his, his personality? But also, where do you think he would have struggled, Alan? Of course, you know, it, it's always very difficult to, to sort of second guess Churchill and to say what, what he would have done today. But what I think you can look for is the sort of general principles in, in, in how he would have approached the, the crisis, how he might have responded. Communication would, would surely have been key and would have been just as important as it was in, in 1940. Mm-hmm. I think he would also um, have taken time um, to secure the scientific advice. Churchill was not a scientist by by any means, but he was someone who was always interested in the potential of science. It's what leads him to found Churchill College in Cambridge at the end of his life, which is a college which specialises in science and technology. And he was the first prime minister of this country to actually have his own scientific advisor in Frederick Lindemann, later Lord Charwell. Not only did he have a scientific advisor with him in number 10, but he also set up his own statistical unit, which was within number 10 and with him, and which collated information for him across a whole range of of different subjects so that he had effectively his own library, his own database. I think he would have struggled enormously with 
the isolation. He loved the, the cut and thrust of debate in the Houses of Parliament. He loved the discussions in the War Cabinet. Um, and he relished the face-to-face cemetery with, with Stalin and Roosevelt. And I think he might have sort of struggled with the remote communication uh, 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 over these issues. So led by the science, but possibly not on Microsoft Teams or Zoom platforms, or not certainly not have enjoyed them quite quite so much. So, but he would have had people who were very good at Microsoft Teams and Zoom. <laughs> yes, precisely. Great to hear that he would have been led by the science. Hi, this is Dr. Raj Basord wishing you health, wealth and happiness as long as you listen to the Workplace Evolution Podcast. I've took a, a, a definition that stands out for me uh, of leadership from the late great uh, American Stephen Covey, author of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And he gives a, a, a definition. He says, the leader is the one who climbs the tallest tree, surveys the entire situation and yells, wrong jungle. The busy, efficient producers and managers re- respond, shut up, we're making progress. Now, when we think about that particular definition, it says something about the leader having foresight that enabled him to challenge the status quo and typical direction of, of travel. Churchill is very much a big picture person. Um, When necessary, he could certainly immerse himself in the detail and he had an amazing memory and capacity for detail and and, and hard work. Um, But really, I mean, I think when you you look at his career, it's his ability to look at the big picture um, that that sort of stands out. And, And where does that come from? I think, you know, he was someone who was largely self-educated because he didn't do particularly well at school. He didn't go to university. Um, and it's only when he's in the army in the 1890s that he chooses to sort of educate himself. And he does it by reading very, very widely. And thereafter, throughout his life, he reads extremely widely. He also, I think, develops a huge network of contacts and contacts that are broader than just in the narrow political circles. He has, you know, he's in touch with the leading painters of the, of the day, people like Munnings and Sickert and Lavery who teach him to paint. He's in touch with many of the leading authors of the day, George Bernard Shaw, for example, cultural people, business people, political people. And I think this, you know, this builds up sort of quite, quite useful sort of information channels um, for him. And I think, you know, he would say that it's by looking backwards to the sort of the past history of Britain or or that that informs the direction of travel that that, that you should take in the future. I think if you're looking for a constant that runs through Churchill's whole career, it is about maintaining British power, British prestige. That that's that's really what drove him, and that's that's what he devoted his life to. You know, certainly by today's standards, you know, he he was not politically correct. But I think you know, in all of his work, in his early work in sort of pioneering social reform, right through to his leadership during the Second World War, what what drives him is maintaining British power and prestige. What what personal values do you think he was acting on? 
that led to his convictions being so strong and, and compelling to others? Well, this is a really interesting question because in some, you know, on one level, Churchill can seem um, actually quite inconsistent. Um, here, after all, is a grandson of a duke who teams up with Lloyd George in promoting the people's budget, which seeks to undermine the power of the House of Lords. Here is someone who starts as a conservative, as his father had been, defects to the Liberal Party in 1904 and then defects back to the Conservatives 20 years later in 1924, famously allegedly saying um, that anyone can rat, but it takes a certain ingenuity to <laughs> re-rat. Um, so, you know, you can find all, all, all of those sorts of inconsistencies. And in the big picture, I think that's where Churchill is constant. He's constant, of course, in his own ambition, which we shouldn't underestimate, and wanting to put himself um, at the centre of affairs. He's He's consistent in, in his self-confidence, but he's also, I think, consistent in wanting to do what he believes is best for the country. So, I mean, he, he moves from, from the Conservatives to the Liberals over the issue of free trade. He moves back because he's opposed to communism and the rise of socialism and sees them as being bad. When it came to the end of the war and Churchill was not actually voted back into power. You've, you mentioned his, his purpose being around maintaining British power and prestige, but also acting in the, the, the best interest for his country and wanting the very best for, for the country. Do you feel when he lost the election that he lost his purpose, essentially, which is so critical to leadership? Yeah. And so, I mean, I get asked about the election defeat in 1945 a lot. And I think you can see an, an, an element of, of losing purpose here and certainly of losing momentum. At the beginning of the Second World War, the purpose is very clear and it's very clearly articulated in his first speech to, to the House of Commons, where he says, you know, you ask what is our aim? It's victory, victory at all costs. Of course, when you get to the end of the war, it's clear that there is going to be victory. And there are now all sorts of other complicated problems relating to the post-war settlement, both internationally, but also at home. You've had the beverage report. All major parties are pledged to implement it, but, but, but which party is actually likely to implement it more wholeheartedly, a Conservative government or, or a Labour government, once you get the return to party politics? So the situation by the end of the war has become much more complex, much more multifaceted. I think the fact that he has been prime minister for five and a half long years and five and a half grueling years, and that he is by the end of the war, of course, physically and I think mentally exhausted. News of the election defeat comes through. Clementine Churchill, of course, famously turns to her husband and says, well, dear, this may be a blessing in disguise meaning, of course, that if you've been forced to carry on as prime minister, it might have killed you. Of course, his reply was simply to look at her and say, it's pretty effectively disguised me. And there's no doubt that, that he wanted to, to, to carry on and that he wanted to do the peace as, as, as well as the war. Churchill felt that the universal gratitude to him would outweigh any talk of a brave new world. And of course, in that, he, he got that absolutely wrong. I think there was also a feeling from elements of the electorate that 
whilst Churchill was a Super Bowl war leader, he wasn't necessarily a man for peace. And if you were a soldier serving out in, in, in the Far East or in uh, somewhere in the empire, you might well have voted for the Labour Party um, in the hope that that was going to get you back more quickly. Now, no doubt it's partly that he is exhausted by this point. Partly, I think, also his nature. He is a fighter um, and he can't resist fighting that general election in the same way as fighting a wartime campaign. You've mentioned his, I guess, decorum and, and reserve, even in, even in defeat. And we talked about emotions before, Alan, and, and the stiff upper lip. As a psychologist, I'm particularly interested in how he managed to cope with outwardly presenting an, an image of control and, and confidence to the, to the public. But when inside, he may have been feeling something very difficult. And, you know, you, you read about him visiting places that would be potentially very volatile, such as Coventry, Bristol and, and the East End of London after the bombings. You know, these are places of where emotions are really at play here. You know, when he goes out on those key wartime visits, it's almost as if he adopts this personality which you can see is epitomised by the bulldog scowl, by the cigar. So part of it, I think, is it's about dressing for the part in private with his inner circle. And sometimes in public, he is not afraid to show his emotions. So he will shed tears on some of these occasions and he will shed tears in, in, in front of people. That then helps them to identify with him you know one moment it's it, it's the bulldog scowl and the v for victory salute and and, and the next it, it, it's the tears but the fact that he could do both i think means people identify with him and i and i and i think it was it wasn't that he was trying to be somebody else he's simply being himself wow there lies you know a lot of key themes that are touched on leadership today you know, the ability to convey a vision, to, to be a great communicator, to bring experts uh, around you, seek good advice, have a great network. But the amount of times we've heard, heard the, the message of you know, be yourself, you know, and, and that being key to being credible to others and, and, and key to trust, really. Um, Alan, before we just discuss the Churchill Archive and the International Churchill Society, and I'm going to ask you a particularly difficult question, slightly okay. put you on the spot here, so, so get ready. If Churchill was with us today, what do you think his message would be to the British people to endure and continue through the current crisis? I think his, his message would be, you know, that, that we all had a, a part to play because then he was very good at conveying that message. That was very much part of his, his, his wartime oratory. But it's not just about those on the, on the front line, but that, you know, he was dealing with a situation where you were also having the, you know, the bombing of London and other British cities. And I, and I think it would be sort of reinforcing that message that we all have that part to play and that those roles are all important. I think he would also be using his most sort of Daring oratory and his strongest praise for those on the front line in in the NHS. He'd be out clapping with the rest of us as well, I'm sure. And uh, you can find out more about Churchill on churchillarchive.com and winstonchurchill.org. And of course, 
you can also submit for the competition which was mentioned at the start of the podcast good luck to anyone that's going to submit for that competition i look forward to hearing about the 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 winner on the website and all that remains for me to say really alan is is thank you so much for all your time giving us a, a huge insight into his leadership ability but not just the traits from his personality but but how he achieved that reputation as a, as a global leader so alan packwood thank you so much for your time on the workplace evolution podcast thank you very much That was the Workplace Evolution Podcast with Michael Costello. Keep listening so I can get paid. Please remember to like and subscribe and share the podcast. Watch out for our next episode.